increasing emphasis on how can apprenticeships not just be an engine of social mobility at the sort of early talent stage, but how do you use apprenticeships to reshape the workforce and what the workforce looks like? Don't go to the US because you want to be in America. Go there because you're being pulled there by your customers or, or what you're seeing happen in society or the markets in which you operate. Everyone needs to be taught how to be a co-pilot of AI, how to work with it, the ethics of AI. This is absolutely crucial. From the first-time founders to the funds that back them, innovation needs different. Our episode partner, HSBC Innovation Banking, is proud to accelerate growth for tech and life science businesses, creating meaningful connections and opening up a world of opportunity for entrepreneurs and investors alike. Discover more at www.hsbcinnovationbanking.com slash en gb. Hello and welcome to the UKTM podcast, a weekly chat with the movers and shakers of the UK tech industry and the destination for all things UK tech related. And this week, we're joined by Ewan Blair, co-founder and chief executive of Multiverse, an apprenticeship company that is aiming to redefine education and work. Welcome, Ewan. Hi, great to be on the show. Thank you for being here. And first of all, you've described Multiverse as being a genuine, credible alternative to university education. So just talk me through what it is that you're hoping to do with this company. So when you look at Multiverse, it's our belief that the best thing we can do is provide equitable access to economic opportunity, which means really changing the way we think about education, changing the way we think about work, and crucially ensuring that the benefits of both work and education reach as many people as possible. Some of that is as an alternative to traditional university by providing people routes into jobs without degrees. But a huge amount of it is about retraining and reskilling the workforce at scale and actually using this concept of professional apprenticeships, learning on the job, earning while learning in an applied context to change the way that companies approach talent, who they hire, who they promote, how they progress people, and really providing access to sort of relevant learning at scale that can be consequential for the future of people's careers. That will probably be music to the ear of many bosses who I've heard talk about graduates coming into their companies and not really having any of the skills that they hoped they would have in order to do the job. But it's also taking a risk, isn't it? Because, you know, employing a graduate shows a certain level of commitment to education and getting to a certain level in education. How do you kind of persuade employers that they don't necessarily need to have put in the work, as it were, for so many years? It's interesting because it's just challenges us to think differently about what we see as education and learning. And I'll give you an example. It's actually very rare we have companies say, I'm worried that about hiring someone without a degree, that they might be missing something. What they care about more is, does someone have the skills that I might need? Do they have the requisite level of maturity? And there's no reason you need to get that on an academic campus. You can make a pretty compelling argument that someone who's been working night shifts for several years in an Amazon warehouse, or who's been serving drinks and customers in a pub responsible for negotiating with suppliers and procurement and opening and closing it and other things. And people have been doing all sorts of jobs that aren't necessarily long-term careers, but are important jobs. 
the idea that a 21-year-old Bristol graduate is somehow more mature than them because they went an academic route doesn't really bear much scrutiny. And there's no correlation between academics and job performance. But the other thing is when we talk about apprenticeships, it's not just for young people at the start of their careers who either can't afford to or are choosing not to go to university. It's also for huge volumes of people who are in jobs where within the next five years, the prospects in that field don't look particularly good and they will need to be trained and reskilled. And so we're using apprenticeships to address this challenge of how you create genuinely diverse but effective talent pipelines away from traditional sources. And at the same time, how you activate some of the potential and latent talent that exists within companies they probably just don't know about because they're in roles that often get overlooked or aren't sufficiently high profile to, to where they can really shine. Now, all that learning on the job stuff sounds great, but actually... COVID turned things a bit on its head, really, didn't it? Because people suddenly just realised they didn't need to go into the office. And I remember at the time, a lot of people thinking, how is this going to affect young people who kind of need to be in an office environment and learning from things? So how does the, the sort of changing nature of the way we're working and the fact that we're not necessarily working nine to five in an office environment anymore, how does that impact yeah. you know, what you're talking about? Well, it's a great question because it means you have to be even more intentional and deliberate about how you're giving people opportunities for formal learning because a lot of the informal stuff is no longer as easily accessible when you're not surrounded by people in an office every day and so it's you know we, we did a big survey recently it's an astonishing stat over half the workforce has had no formal training in the last five years and you wonder why we have a productivity crisis i mean that's a major challenge so people are, are lacking some of those skills in jobs that are really important and they can be contributing a lot more if they were given them and employers are prepared to invest in them. So I think it's the, the importance of formal training is even more acute in a post-COVID, slightly more distributed world. Now, you mentioned earlier the University of Bristol, which is where you went, and then obviously you went on to Yale. Did you think that your university education served you well then or did you find it frustrating and, and, and coming at, you came out with not the skills you wanted? Yeah, it's, uh, it's something I always have a slightly mixed opinion of. I enjoyed elements of it. I didn't love studying for studying's sake. And actually, you know, my first job in investment banking, when I started, I had this degree in ancient history and a master's in international relations, taught me absolutely nothing about how to do this job I was hired for. And I learned everything about it on the job. But one of the things that, that sort of drove me to really investigate this issue and ultimately set up Multiverse was when I looked around at the peers I was joining this, this graduate cohort with, there was very little diversity. We were nearly all white, nearly all men. Crucially, we all came from very privileged backgrounds. And that's because we've been selected from one of a tiny handful of universities that are not really representative of broader society. And yet we had no divine right to be there. We were learning everything on the job. And yet the, these kind of credentials we had were deemed some sort of important prerequisite when they probably weren't. You mentioned diversity there. And of course, your father, Tony Blair, the Labour government, were very, very big on this idea of university education for everybody and really kind of, you know, transformed the way that, 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 that higher education worked. But do you think then that that was not the right way to go? That policy was 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 not a good idea, given that w what you're doing now? Well, it's more that the belief was the more people you get, you gave access to higher education, the more people who got to university the more we might, might be able to distribute some of the economic gains more evenly. But it just hasn't worked out that way. Only, you know, technically only 4% of those earning free school meals make it to Russell Group University. In the US, the astonishing statistic is that 50% of those who go to university 
from less fortunate backgrounds will drop out without getting a degree. And family income is a better determinant of your career earnings than your degree, even at an elite institution. So they've failed to become engines of social mobility that I think a lot of people believe they should be. And that's, to, in some ways, that's kind of, it's, it's a sort of feature of the model rather than a bug, because the reality is, if you're giving people a one-size-fits-all academic education, a shot at learning, and expecting that in a very particular context, and expecting that to sort of set them up for what could be 50 years of work, it's never going to work very effectively. And so what I always say to employers and others is, let's make sure we're giving sufficient provision for training people in an applied context. And I'll give you one of the distinguishing features of multiverse and how we approach apprenticeships and learning more generally. We talk increasingly about our MAGE framework. MAGE stands for Measured, Applied, Guided and Equitable. Measured because we need to demonstrate ROI of learning, the return on investment, both for individuals and their career earnings and progression, but also for companies. Is it making them more efficient? Are people able to perform tasks quicker? Because that matters. Applied because learning on the job consistently shows better retention of knowledge, better translation from knowledge into skills, and it allows people to actually see tangible results from what they're learning guided because where possible it's much more effective to give people accountability and actually have them learning in a way that's not simply self-directed than navigating through online courses and finally equitable if you can make learning free to the individuals if you can take away the opportunity cost of needing to study without working and if you can ensure you're you're providing something that is suitable for people from any background whether they have additional learning needs whatever their gender whatever their race then you can actually elevate education to something that is more accessible and more effective. So that's that's our kind of obsession in this area. Your your point about the number of students that drop out of university resonates with me. I've got a teenager who who has done just that. And I can imagine that, you know, this is a very attractive option to young people. But let's talk about the numbers. You know, you've got some incredible firms that that you work with, Facebook, Morgan Stanley, Google. You must have a huge queue of uh, young people wanting to join this scheme. So is there a mismatch between the number of employees versus the number of people wanting to do this? Supply and demand in, in that area is always going to be a challenge because, as you say, it's such a compelling proposition, right? You get access to an incredible job. You're getting education and training provided on that job. It's free to you. You're paid a salary all the way through. We have over 100 qualified applicants for every role. But if you look at that sort of pipeline of talent, that's also always, by the way, at the behest of the economy and how it's moving. If you look at the biggest obsession for companies and chief execs right now, it's less around their early talent pipelines, so that's still a focus, but it's increasingly around what are we going to do to reshape our workforces? How do we provide people with access to jobs? How do we move away from this situation of every time there's an economic downturn, making lots of people redundant and then having to rehire different types of people without the residual knowledge those people we let go had. And so there's an increasing emphasis on how can apprenticeships not just be an engine of social mobility at the sort of early talent stage, but how do you use apprenticeships to reshape the workforce and what the workforce looks like? HSBC Innovation Banking, our partner for this episode, provides commercial banking services, expertise and insights to the technology, life science and healthcare, private equity and venture capital industries. To find out why innovation needs different, go to www.hsbcinnovationbanking.com slash en-gb. 
and share some of the sort of successes. I know that mm. uh, you've said in, in, in articles before that you've had people, you know, that could have gone to Oxford University that turned down that chance to join Multiverse. But but give me an example of, you know, yeah. where somebody has gone with this. Give me a success story. Uh, we've, I mean, I'll give you an example. One of my proudest moments was when two of our apprentices, Zaina and Annie, they shared on Instagram pictures of the houses that they own. They're both aged 21 years old cars in the drive, right? They're, they're doing pretty well for themselves. They're both working at tech companies. One's a software engineer, one's a digital marketer, and they have no debt. And they're in a position that most of their peers would dream of being in. And, and then, you know, I look at stories like we, we did a brilliant program with Citigroup where we took uh, mums who had left the workforce in the 90s to go and have kids. And then 20 or so years later, we're looking to return to work. And we retrained as software engineers because the nature of City had changed. Line cooks and cashiers at Taco Bell who are being retrained into software engineer roles and into data analyst roles. And it's actually stories like that, by the way, are one of the reasons that we're dropping age requirements on all of our roles. Because while we absolutely wanted to help young people and will still continue to do that, there's amazing talent that is just being missed from not just people over the age of 50 who sometimes might have quite quit or, or kind of being lost in amongst all the figures. But, you know, we have first generation immigrants who are Uber drivers who are looking for long term careers. We have people who are working in high churn, low wage jobs and sectors where they they want progression. They want to earn a family sustaining wage. And so uh, apprenticeships in this model can be a really effective way of actually addressing a lot of economic shocks that are hitting people. And in a, in a kind of technology context, one of the reasons we're so adamant about making smart decisions now in terms of how we approach the workforce issue is that historically every major inflection point in technology we've seen where there's been a great leap forward be it the internet or the demise of manufacturing in britain or whatever else the people who can least afford it have suffered the most and so while the the gains for society and the economy generally have broadly been net positive there's been an incredible amount of economic friction and devastation they've left behind. As we look at what generative AI is already starting to do to the workforce and will do to the workforce, it's so important that we get ahead of that by retraining and reskilling people in new technologies so that we don't get left with major social problems that challenge the foundations of liberal democracies. Lots of people are rightly looking at how we confront populism more generally. Well, the best way to do that is not to allow portions of society to feel like they've been left behind and economically disenfranchised. And on that point, you know, the changing way we're working with AI coming along and, and, and possibly taking quite a, a lot of jobs. What else do you think that the, U, the UK government could be doing or the UK more generally could be doing to get those skills right for people and make sure that businesses do have access to people with really good tech skills so i think we could do a lot more in the school system and it is it is hard changing the school system and the national curriculum it seems to take a very long time you know i i still don't understand why we don't teach people basic financial skills in school how to open bank accounts right how to you know manage your personal finances we teach very little in the way of home economics and kind of how to look after yourself and various other things there is too much of a focus on the purely academic Everyone needs to be taught how to be a co-pilot of AI, how to work with it, the ethics of AI. This is absolutely crucial. And we're, we're hearing the right noises. The key is whether we start to really gear the education system around this. I mean, we are, the biggest investments we're making in our company are in AI. So we built, for example, Atlas, 
which actually came out of a, of a hackathon our engineering team had that is now an always-on coaching assistant for our apprentices. And it's incredibly valuable. And unlike a sort of, you know, typical chatbot, you don't simply ask it questions and it gives you answers. It uses a well-established Socratic method to actually challenge and ask questions in response and try and uh, kind of uh, uh, try and actually tease out learning and learning outcomes. We focus it around measured, applied, guided, equitable, this mage framework. And we're using increasing amounts of data we take on what makes someone successful in their role, performance reviews, progressions, pay increases, promotions, to try and basically get smarter and smarter about both how we assess and identify talent. Because if you do this, back to that kind of equitable access to economic opportunity point, if you can do this in a fair way, we can almost take a money ball approach to talent, both internally and externally, and identify people who are remarkable but overlooked if we can start to figure out how to identify those people and then how to train those people in a personalized way that works well for them. So I'm I'm incredibly optimistic about what we can do about AI. I would just urge policymakers, business leaders and others to ensure that we're investing in making sure people don't get left behind. And that's skills is the solution. We have to train people. And what you were saying earlier about education totally resonates with me. I used to be a teacher before I became a tech journalist. And I think if I went back into a school, I would still see some of the things I was seeing when I was teaching in right. textbooks. You would. People sitting yeah. in, in, in rooms to do exams, which uh, my own children are still doing. Uh, it feels, though, that the, the shifts that's needed is quite a radical one. And, and it, yes. it, it will need political will. And I'm, do, do you feel that, that there's that desire to make those changes that are really going to pre- prepare our education system and fit it for the 21st century? I, I think there is in theory. The problem is, you know, as always happens, governments are buffeted by various priorities and, and sometimes these things can fall through the cracks. I mean, your point is absolutely true. It's the same on university campuses. If you go there, you'd see the same thing you were seeing in the 70s broadly, except people are typing on laptops instead of writing in notebooks. And I think um, that does present a, a significant challenge. But the will is there. It's just whether or not it gets prioritised sufficiently. Yeah, as well. We, a conversation that I think will go on for, 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 for a long time to come until we've yes. got to the solutions, sadly. But let's talk a little bit about the sort of financials of your company. You've been valued at $1.4 billion, but you've also had annual losses for seven years. So Talk me through that and the process to get to profitability. What what sort of timeline are we looking at there? So we're still very much in investment mode. And this is one of the advantages of being a venture capital-backed company and going out and raising funding. At the moment, we are fully in in, in kind of investment mode. We're investing in our programs. We're investing in our coaching. We're making sure we have more content. We're rolling it out AI, both for employers and how we assess their needs and for apprentices and their needs. We're fortunate that we're growing very quickly. You know, we reported, I think, 66% revenue growth in our last accounts. Yes, we are not a profitable enterprise yet, but we're also not looking to be a profitable enterprise yet. And we're fortunate that we've been able to raise capital and and sort of we can invest in that. Now, at a certain point, you do, of course, want to return a profit, and that is a good thing for any business. But the immediate focus is on how we provide an elite learning experience, but that reaches as many people as we can possibly reach. And you've also uh, broken into the U.S. market, but that comes amid layoffs that are mainly in the U.S. So has that just proved a very tough nut to crack? There's lots of U.K. startups out there that would be 
love to do what you've done. So it would be great to get some sort of tips, the good, the bad and the ugly, really, in terms <laughs> of, of scaling up and, and, and breaking America. No, it's, it's, a, it's a great question because we're very committed to growing in the US and actually we've, we've had plenty of notable successes there. It is a different market, right? It is, um, in many ways, actually, it's 50 individual markets because of all the different states and the ways in which they operate. But when I look at the US, the biggest thing we've been focused on establishing is actually landing this concept of apprenticeships because there isn't the same historic muscle around it there. And, you know, America has a major challenge that it is, it has a very unhealthy addiction to college. 75% of school leavers will go to college. The dropouts are astonishing. I think it's something in the region of only about 52, 53% will earn a degree within six years. The costs are anywhere from 200 to $300,000. And that doesn't include things like deferred earnings and various other things. You know, it's $1.7 trillion of student debt that America's dealing with. And at the same time, you have similar productivity issues to the UK, similar workforce issues and similar challenges around workers being displaced and not necessarily retrained. So the, the market conditions are very clear, but you're trying to basically establish a concept. You know, I speak to plenty of, of US-based leaders, CEOs, CTOs, CIOs, and they all have a similar reflection, which is we want to reach more diverse, high-quality talent and we're going to need to retrain our workforces. They're just not sufficiently aware yet that apprenticeships is a way in which they can do that. But we're working on it. So, you know, if you were to offer advice, if other companies were mm. looking to do the same, obviously there's very specific things about your market that you've just been through, but just more general kind of tips and around how you go about doing it and things that perhaps that you would advise not to do with this kind of huge conundrum of getting into this this huge market. So I would say don't be afraid to approach America through a very local lens. There's a lot of power that states are given, that cities and local governments are given. Actually, it's very different from the UK and even some parts of Europe. And so you can build strong relationships and links there that are really, really valuable. I think it's really important and there's incredible talent in the US to make sure that you have a sufficient team that is is local and based on the ground there. And that's that's been really important for us. And finally, I'd say, don't go to the US because you want to be in America. Go there because you're being pulled there by your customers or, or what you're seeing happen in society or the markets in which you operate. You know, for us, our, our first big customers there were all people we'd worked with in the UK and who are really keen to export the program further afield. So a pull rather than a push is generally preferable. Good advice. Um, now, obviously, we talked about the skill shortage. How do things like immigration work in terms of your apprenticeship scheme? And, and, and what are your just general thoughts on, on the current immigration policy for tech talent? I think you, you want Britain to be a magnet for some of the best talent in the world. And immigration is absolutely a part of that. Now, Unfortunately, I would argue immigration has been, uh, immigrants have long been used as scapegoats for various issues and it's become a lightning rod politically. And what that means is that immigration policy is becoming tighter and tighter in many areas for anyone, whether you're, you're looking to get a kind of talented tech visa or whether you're a service worker or whatever else it might be. And that's all also been exacerbated by Brexit. So therefore it is more important than ever that we actually spend time and money training people in Britain 
and equipping them with the skills they need to be successful. Otherwise, we're never going to be address, able to address some of the material skill shortages and talent shortages we have in various sectors. Uh, but I think that, you know, we, we, we would, it's incredible that in Britain, we live in a country where many other people want to live and see it as a brilliant place to go and start a life and build a family and everything else. We should encourage that, but it shouldn't be at the expense of, of equipping people already in Britain with the skills they need to be successful. But I, I'd love us to, to, to see us look at immigration through a, a more empathetic and inclusive lens and understand that the economic need is great. Now, we imagine for a minute the scenario where, you know, government has embraced the idea that we need to completely change the education system. What do you see as being the role of education technology in that, in that sort of future pipeline for skills? So we've got to fill the gaps. Right. Because otherwise, you know, I, I actually one of the reasons I'm so focused on education post 18 as opposed to pre 18 is there's just much more we can do to shape it. Right. You don't have to follow the strict school strictures. You can, you know, identify what employees need and give them what they need. And um, you have far more freedom to actually be innovative and to try new things and to teach people in different ways. So regardless of what happens pre-18 and in the school system, and there are plenty of changes I'd love to see happen there, we're going to make sure that we're able to not just kind of fill in some of the deficiencies with that system, but also focus on strengthening this link between education and employment. Because to many people, the idea of education for education's sake is a bit of a luxury. For a lot of them, it's how can I leverage education or learning to earn more money, to support my family and to achieve the things I want to achieve in life. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. And we have to make sure that we don't sort of put academic education on a pedestal and think that other forms of education are inferior, especially when the data suggests applied learning in the workplace is actually more effective if you're trying to create skills. Now, we're running out of time. A question that I was a bit intrigued by is just your name, Multiverse, because when I first came across your company, I thought you were going to be something to do with a metaverse. Why did you call yourself Multiverse? And are you now kind of coming up against people who, who are thinking that you're more related to, I mean, we've had that film, haven't we, Everywhere, Everything Everywhere All at Once. Everybody's talking about multiverses <laughs> now, but you don't really have anything to do with multiverses. <laughs> Great film. Well, look, it's a couple of reasons. The first is the multiverse theory is this idea that anything's possible because somewhere it's already happening, right? There are multiple different universes, multiple different realities. And this, this idea of kind of having multiverse careers is really important because we basically relied on a very unipolar, unimodal model for a long time. You go to university and you get a specific type of education. And once you're in the workforce, you stay in a job and that's what you do. We like to think of a much more multipolar, multimodal approach, um, far more inclusive, far more pluralistic, where people can choose what is best for them and take those paths and approaches. So it, it unlocks some of that excitement, hopefully. Makes sense. It's a good name. Uh, but that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of the UKTM podcast. Thank you to you and Blair for joining me. And thank you to everyone who's listening. We will be back with another episode next week. But in the meantime, you can keep up to date with all the latest UK tech developments at www.uktech.news. Don't forget to follow UKTN and myself on LinkedIn and X, where you can also give us your comments and suggestions about the show. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. This 
This podcast is brought to you by HSBC Innovation Banking, the power behind the UK's forward thinkers, future makers and leap takers. They're helping to ignite the bold ideas that reshape our world. Go to www.hsbcinnovationbanking.com slash en dash GB to find out how innovation needs different. Thank you.